Welcome to the Superhero of Love podcast. I am Bridget Fonger. I wrote a book called Superhero of Love, Heal Your Broken Heart and Then Go Save the World. That book is going to be out in January 2019, but I didn't want to wait until that time to start talking to superheroes of love. And guess what? Here's the news. You are a superhero of love. And through talking to other superheroes like yourself, tapping into that little superhero inside of you, I'm hoping that you and I and all of us start feeling more and more like superheroes of love, meaning that we love and are loved more than ever before. So welcome. Let's get this party started. Superheroes, we are here with Dr. Marnie Feuerman. Dr. Marnie Feuerman is the author of Ghosted and Breadcrumbed, Stop Falling for Unavailable Men and Get Smart About Healthy Relationships. She is a therapist whose expertise is in the area of relationships. And I am so excited for her to be here because I read her book a few weeks ago. And it's if anybody has been ghosted or breadcrumbed, which by the way, I did not even know what breadcrumbed <laughs> was. So we'll talk about that first, just in case anybody else out there didn't know what sure. breadcrumbed was. Um, Absolutely. But I just want to say to anybody that's been recently ghosted and they need something. And in fact, oh my God, I have so many friends that have been ghosted. Um, I have not had that experience miraculously with men, but but um, if somebody has just been ghosted and you've been traumatized by it, this is a really easy read and it's a really fast read and it's it's a really fun read. And it's also not just for people that have been ghosted or breadcrumbed. Like that subtitle says, if you've been falling for unavailable men, this would probably be one step toward you getting smart about <laughs> not doing that. <laughs> so, so, um, so the first thing that I want to dive into is I want to hear about a little bit more about your story. Now, I know that a lot of the stories, and I love books mm -hmm. um, that have stories of your patients in them, and, and so those are peppered throughout, which is really fun, but I would mm -hmm. love to hear what brought you to this moment that you are a relationship expert. Like, did you struggle <laughs> before you found the love of your life, etc.? <laughs> yeah, some of my own stories are woven in there, sprinkled in there a little bit too. Um, and certainly client stories. So yeah, I spent most of my 20s uh, making a lot of mistakes. I did meet my husband and get married and finally settle down, but it took a lot of trials and tribulations. And so I was about, I want to say 30, 31 um, before I met and met him and got married. So I had, yes, a lot of bad experiences and I had to do my own work and have my own therapy and figure things out. And there were a lot of things from my own family history, things that were um, blocking me and causing me to repeat a lot of patterns or, you know, definitely some men who were emotionally unavailable, but also men that just weren't healthy themselves. So I think naturally it prob probably um, makes sense that I'm also like in the helping profession, you know, so there's something I'd say to that. I'm definitely was, you know, drawn to the field and I love psychology and behavioral health and I didn't specialize necessarily at first, but then as time went on and I, I got more um, experience in the field, I was drawn more to work with couples and understanding family dynamics. Um, and now I specialize in couples and marriage therapy. And so I think also a piece of that is, you know, being a child of divorce. And so and how that's influenced me. 
So, um, so yes, I definitely have some of my own stories. And then one of the, the other reasons I wrote this book was um, I have a lot of online content. I write a lot of articles that, um, you know, out there on various media websites and some of the ones that got the most views and shares were ones about similar, um, you know, s similar types of themes. So women struggling with um, married men and not knowing what to do, wanting to know whether or not they should walk away they're an affair partner and they're waiting and waiting um, for this person to leave their wife and they're stuck. Um, other ones related to feeling emotionally abused in a relationship and, and not really, which is so, it's so subtle a lot of times this, this type of abuse. And so I think it really resonated with people seeing some of the things where people go, Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, that's me. That's happening to me. And then clicking uh, and putting it together that they're in a, in a really unhealthy situation. So that, that was good data for me that told me that there's got to be a lot of women struggling in these situations. Uh, and so it was sort of a natural fit between my own experiences and what I sensed people wanted. Um, there was a need for it out there. And so just putting that together. And so hence we have the, the full-blown book here. So let's talk about yeah. um, the, the, this whole, in my tw 20s, 30s, and 40s dating, I was never ghosted. Like people didn't just up and disappear. Oh. This seems to be like this new phenomenon. And then um, also, second part of the question is, tell us about what breadcrumbing is. Sure. Um, yeah, ghosting was one of the first terms that I had heard for when some, someone who shows you romantic interest, you may have had a date, you may have even had couple months of a relationship and then poof they disappear but no contact no contact you don't know what's happened it leaves a lot of ambiguity um, and a lot of um, doubt it brings up a lot of self-doubt and what if and what was me was it me what happened and that uncertainty drives people crazy and so other terms then came from that that I think are just to describe these dating trends, a lot of like quirky, funny, you know, kind of funny terms. Um, and a lot of it, I think, came from the millennial generation and online dating and, and all of that, which has just evolved so much. And so we have some other words. And I think another one that I thought was pretty popular was, was the breadcrumbing, like when somebody strings you along, they throw you breadcrumbs, just to kind of keep you engaged, but they don't have any real intention for commitments, but they want to give you just enough to keep you hanging on. And then there, there's, there's a few others. And I think- did you, have, did you have any experience with either ghosting or breadcrumbing? Sure, definitely, definitely both. I've definitely had the ghosting experience. And when I read about what it's like and why it's so distressing, it made so much sense, you know, because we do not like to not know. We don't want to have loose ends. We want a little bit of feedback, but also it feels like it lacks empathy for, for like another human being. Yes. I um, love, I'm going to read a quote from your book because I love sure. the way you put it. It's really, really super simple, but it's so uh, great. It says, Oh, I love this. Awesome. <laughs> there, there is never a perfect time to break up with someone you love, but certain circumstances make it more amicable. I do not recommend ghosting someone as tempting as that might be. 
<laughs> you can and should bring empathy and integrity to the process and apply the golden rule. I would say that the only, ex the, the only exception I really recommend to people is if they feel like they're in danger, you know, if they feel like it's unsafe. Um, certainly you get a free pass to, to ghost and do whatever you need to do for your safety. Otherwise, you know, these are hard conversations to have, but they're also a sign of being an adult, being mature, um, learning, you know, learning to have effective communication, even, even over something that's difficult. You're going to need that your whole life. I mean, certainly if you do want to have a long-term relationship with somebody, you're going to want to know how to approach, you know, tricky topics. And you don't have to give a whole lot of details. You, you can say, I have some suggestions in the book too. You know, just saying, I don't think I see a future. Um, I don't feel the chemistry. You know, I feel like, you know, more that I can relate to you as a friend. I just don't see the romance in our future. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to insult the person or, or give them negative feedback. You don't have to do that. And so I think generally people appreciate it. And I know that there's been times where, you know, the other thing that I think makes it hard is I remember feeling really bad when I had to break up with someone, if I was in that circumstance and I would really, you know, try to just, just say something and just get it over with. And sometimes you do get a very negative response. You get someone who is really unhappy with you and can't believe it and they want to argue. And, you know, I think that's rare, but it does happen and it just makes it more uncomfortable. But I still think, look, you still have to, you still have to do it. And I think like the book said, bringing integrity to the process is going to be key. I love that. And I love how you talk about throughout the book, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So that's an uncomfortable conversation to have when you're breaking up with somebody. But like you right. said, there's so many uncomfortable conversations in the course of a relationship. Okay. So a good portion of the book is on attachment style. So let's, let's talk about that. And I love the phrase um, attachment distress, like just reading that phrase, attachment distress. I felt like I had a cellular memory of attachment distress. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, attachment distress is, it's a, an attachment theory. This is a very, um, this, is a, this is a way of explaining human behavior. So attachment is not pathology. So I want to make that clear. We all have um, attachment styles that we develop we, that, are, that first start in, um, we say from cradle to grave. So as soon as, you know, when you're born, you're not born with the ability to take care of yourself. Um, and so that very first relationship of somebody taking, you know, taking care of, of, of us and being responsive to our needs and helping us thrive, um, that, is, that forms like a blueprint for us. Um, and so the quality of the bond that we have with that caregiver uh, can vary, right? We know that some parents are horribly <laughs> neglectful, sometimes even abusive. And we know some parents are... Um, you know, wonderfully responsive and very engaged and very tuned in um, to the needs of the child. And, um, and so that, that can really vary on a continuum. And so attachment distress occurs when, um, and again, it's very natural as it for, you know, when you see like a, a mother with a child and the mom leaves the room and the child starts to cry, the mom comes back can soothe the baby. So when the baby starts crying because mommy leaves, um, that's what we call attachment distress. They're, they're a little um, dysregulated, you know, emotionally. Uh, and this way, their, their attachment figure, the person they have this bond, the connection with, returns and 
and right away they they calm and, and they return to that that baseline again. And then as the child gets older and older, the child um, feels more and more um, can can explore the world, you know, more readily and feel safe to do so because they now know. Well, mom is, might be home, you know, is home there waiting for me, so I can go out and do these things and feel safe because I have a safe base, secure haven. Um, to come back to, and you feel confident in the way that you interact with the world, how you see other people, how you see yourself. And again, it that really varies. But what they didn't know, see, this res research all started between uh, parents and children. And you've probably heard about attachment parenting and the same concept that we want parents to be responsive to their children. Um, way back in maybe the 50s, maybe the 40s, you know, they used to say, oh, if the baby cries, don't respond right away because you're going to teach the baby to need you more and more and not be independent. We know, okay, that's totally wrong. Don't do that. And so that, then we started with attachment parenting. And so we learned later that the same sort of attachment distress occurs in adult romantic relationships. So you have this blueprint for how responsive you, you think people are. And you might have learned, okay, I have to be really independent and um, what we call downregulate your feelings because nobody really comes. You know, if your parents were neglectful and didn't come, uh, you think, well, I, why, I don't need them anymore. I learn how to just do everything on my own. If your parents were inconsistent, you might end up with what's called an anxious or preoccupied style. So you never know when mom's going to come running when you're you know, when you, when you need something, um, sometimes she does, sometimes she doesn't. So you learn people are inconsistent. And sometimes in order to get my needs met, I have to, I can't just cry, you know, low, I have to cry really, really loud. Like I have to really wave mom down, you know, and so we, t we can tend to do that in our relationship later too, because we think people don't always come when you call. So that's the, I guess, the overarching theme about attachment. And we develop styles, you know, related to that later on. You're either secure, and that's wonderful and great, because that means that you've had a lot of consistency, or one of three insecure styles can play out. You're either avoidant, you're anxious, or you're kind of a combination of the two that we call fearful avoidant or disorganized. Um, and that often comes if you if uh, you had a very abusive uh, childhood, abusive situation, unfortunately. Yeah, I I resonated. They were all fascinating to me, but I, I think I, I resonated with one of them more. And I I remember a couple seminal moments in relationships in my twenties where I literally the fear that was thrilling through every cell in my body with that detachment, right? And the distress level was so high. And it really was like, like the stress of an infant with their, with their mom. Like I, I felt like it, I was re, it was a recurring thing from something that happened in my, in my infancy. And I, I have this recurring, I asked my dad before he passed away, is this memory correct? I remember being in a sink as an infant and on felt like I was on fire. And he said, what, how do you remember that? And he said that they were on a road trip and I had a really, really high fever. And my mother was so freaked out by it that she, she had to, he had to take her in the other room and subdue her. And he came back to get me. But I said, but in those moments, I said, how long were you gone? And he said, I don't know, maybe two minutes. <laughs> I said, well, it felt like forever. 
Wow. Yes. As an adult feeling like it almost felt like that, like out of tune with (laughs) what is going on here. It's just, he left during an argument. It's not the end of the world. (laughs) But it does reactivate that. Yes. That attachment to stress. Exactly. You know, we're born want like the desire to connect is natural. So we we're born with that. We're all wired that way. It's these things that happen to us along the way that tell us, you know, you are, your needs are going to be met or they're not going to be met or whatever it is. And that's why we have even the most extreme version, you know, when, when infants are in these, let's say, orphanages where there's like mm-hmm. one caretaker per 20 kids or something. And then they yes. have what's called reactive attachment disorder. They don't attach. They don't attach very readily or easily. Um, so they ha- in order to thrive, you need that early. And you need that same consistency and reliability from um, a romantic partner later in life. And when you don't have it, then that your whole attachment system gets all stirred up. <laughs> so, um, One of the great things in the book is that you give tips on, you know, you find your attachment um, style and you give tips on how to deal with other attachment styles and, and how you can make it work. It's like your attachment style doesn't have to be bad and wrong. It's just what's so and... Mm-hmm. So, and I love the way that you dealt with that so lovingly. It's like, don't worry, you too can have, you too can have a committed relationship. You are not banished to the orphanage. Yes, that's the, that's really the good news. Um, Not that it doesn't take a lot of work, but I think once you start to realize and recognize it, I remember for me, even when I did extensive training in this to learn about it and to learn how to apply it in my work with couples and also individuals who are trying to figure all this out. I, even myself, I was, I had, I developed even more insight about things and my behavior and why I did what I did or do what I do. Or, or like you just said, you have a certain reaction and it doesn't make sense until it makes sense when you put it in the attachment framework. And then you're like, oh, that's why when he did this, it triggered me so much. Mm-hmm. It triggered you because this goes back into your implicit memory. So this is, this is all cemented back there. And so if we can have insight about it, and then of course, the, the second piece of this is setting a goal to change it. So you're making these behavioral changes as well. So you're not just going, okay, I know what this is. I understand it. But then you're, you're doing something about it. And maybe you're even taking risks because you're doing something out of your comfort zone. So normally, if let's say you crank it up and, and uh, scream and yell at a partner who walks away during an argument, you might say to yourself, well, if, when I scream and yell, that, make, that, push, that pushes him more and more away. It makes him want to shut down. It makes him think I look like a lunatic. It it does all the wrong things. So what I'm going to do is, you know, maybe, maybe try to calm and center myself more and approach him in a way that helps him stay present during this argument. Because the shutting down person, that's their own strategy. That's their own coping strategy too. Because when they hear yelling and screaming, they, they maybe feel overwhelmed. Um, they maybe don't know what to do. Maybe they think, oh, I don't, I, you know, I can't, there's nothing I can do right now. Um, she's out of control, you know, especially if they're not used to that kind of emotionality, if they didn't grow up, if it was like very flatlined in their house, you know. So it's about understanding emotion, understanding your reactions, um, and then understanding how to, how to apply it better in relationships. And certainly your search 
for love, it, it can be really, really helpful as well. The other concept here that I love is the second phase of love, attunement. I'm going to read another piece here. The success of the second phase of love, meaning the phase after the limerence phase, is yeah. highly contingent upon you and your partner having both trust and attunement. Two concepts that she discusses further, but I love this. The core of attunement contains the word tune for a good reason. With positive attunement, you find it relatively easy to tune into yourself and your partner's world so that you both may respond appropriately to each other's cues, emotional state, and emotional needs. When misattunement occurs, there is also a clear pathway to reattune and repair the relationship. When this does not readily happen, attachment distress is the result. So this is the the antithesis of the attachment distress and a way to manage the the moments that you were just discussing. Yes, absolutely. We do have, we want to pick up on these cues. We want to be able to, you know, look at, look at our partners or, you know, someone that we're even, even if we're dating, we, we are constantly looking to see if we, you know, say something, how do they look? Do they look down? Do they look upset? Do they roll their eyes? What do they do? And so when we feel like there's this mismatch or they don't get us, you know, that maybe we're trying to emote something or share something meaningful and they're not picking up on it, you feel like you're not on the same level with them. And then there's, there's disconnection. There's a disconnect. And it, it can definitely happen in, you know, in, every, in any relationship, right? Especially long-term relationships. But the, the people who repair, who are able to kind of recalibrate and say, oh, you know, I see you're upset at me. What happened? Did I do something? I'm sorry. You know, doing whatever you can to repair and you come back into um, alignment over that. And again, it's, it's the same thing with a parent and, and a baby, Okay. Like sometimes we were trying to do that all the time and we might miss a tune. You know, we miss something. Oh, our child's upset. Huh? What happened? I, I don't get it. And you, and you kind of want to reassess and you go, oh, 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 you want it. You know, you wanted your ball over there or whatever it is. So we do that. But the repair is, you know, figuring it out um, and kind of coming back together to reconnect. And so we, we are going to do that as a parent and we're going to do it in our relationships. Yeah, I like I like talking about it. Um, about parenting, um, I'm not a parent myself, but it's it. Y- you can you can add so much more compassion when you're talking about children, right? <laughs> like, yes, so. yes, exactly, exactly. And I think it can also. Um, I think a good point about that as well is that um, sometimes people, when they're in the attachment distress and they act certain ways that can be perceived as, um, you know, not so good, not so healthy. There are things that we judge somebody on. A lot of times that's just been their coping strategy and it, and it could have worked really well for them a long time ago. Like if you're a baby who had to scream really, really loud for a long time to finally get mom's attention And then in your marriage or your relationship, you're screaming really, really loud to get your husband's attention, you know, like that's not random. (laughs) (laughs) And it still can come in handy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so we want to learn better, more adaptive ways, certainly to, to, to do that so that our relationships are, you know, are healthier. Part of what I think I want I wanted like to share in the book, or I hope that I impart in the book is that we want to be very careful about, you know, who we're, who we're dating, especially if we're making this 
choice and we're wanting a long-term relationship or we're wanting commitment on some level or however that looks to you, but you're wanting a partner, you're wanting someone who does attune to you and does know how to repair and they recognize and feel they're hurt if you're hurt, you know, and they want, they want to help. They want to fix it. And if you're in distress, they don't just continue to pull away from you that they, you know, they look to do something about it. And if they don't know how, there's a willingness to, um, to work on it. You know, I, I don't, nobody's going to be perfect, but I think if you share and you say, you know, I feel like you're really inconsistent and I reach out to you and, um, you know, you don't get back to me for four or five hours. You don't, I know you're busy, but you don't just shoot me a text to say really busy right now thinking of you call you tonight, like something that lets me know that you're, you know, you're accessible and I could reach you if I need you. And, the, and if they act like they don't care or they just blow it off, Again, that's information for you. Like, is this someone that you want to be with if they don't care that you're distressed over, you know, over this particular thing or they don't want to work on it? I was just listening to an NPR interview with um, the daughter of Fay Ray and Fay Ray's husband, her father, who was, I can't remember his first name, Raskin. And um, so the daughter wrote a memoir about their love affair, and she had a lot of love letters that her father wrote. And uh, Feyre was opening in a play that was not, not expected to do well. Like, they were worried about this play. And the name of the play escapes me, but it's not important. But there was, she was even more uh, nervous opening than ever before, and he couldn't be with her. So he sent her the most beautiful letter, imagining himself there, like imagining him holding her hand, imagining them talking about the nerves, imagining them talking about everything about the evening and transforming it together, like transforming the nerves into excitement with her. So he sent her this, it was such a beautiful letter oh, that wow. I even felt calm. You know, it was like, yes. and I was like, what an emblem. I heard that just on my way home to do this interview with you. I heard that interview and I was like, wow, that is, that's attunement. That's really showing up for somebody, even if they can't physically be there. They did like, I mean, not even the next best thing, something almost even better because that's like straight, you know, that's so heartfelt. Yeah. It's know? nurturing. And, like, yeah. and apparently he wrote her those kinds of letters throughout their relationship, you know, just really empathetic and taking care of her feelings. And, and, and I was like, well, that's something that he naturally had. And I was so curious, like, I'm curious to read the book. I'm curious to read about his background and what his parents were like. I mean, that's something that's, that's such a beautiful gift that he had and that he gave to her. For men, it's harder to be emotionally attuned, I think, just naturally, or, or maybe that's a bad generalization, but that, that you know, that <laughs> tuning in, back to the word tuning, right? So, so let's talk about that. Like if, you're, if your partner isn't able, you know, to give you what you feel that you emotionally need in these, these moments like that. Yeah. I mean, I think science tells us that, that it, there is, it is skewed a bit though with men, unfortunately. And I think, I think we're realizing that though. And I think we're, we're really looking to do something about it. And I would say that the, maybe the next generation or the generation of men coming up now, we might do it a little differently um, because I think, you know, we were still socializing them to um, maybe be more stoic and not express their feelings so much. Um, we have a term now, uh, the toxic masculinity we see everywhere. And that's a piece of it. 
And so it's very hard for men to be raised that way or socialized that way. And then they're supposed to be really emotionally engaged in their, in their relationship. So it can be, it can be trickier. And so I think women you know, should definitely allow, you know, room for that because women are much more relational. We have better emotional, what's called emotional fluency. We can articulate our emotions much better, much more clearly, and we do it more readily. So I think men can learn, you know, definitely learn from, from women in that way. But what your question was about what to do, like what to do about it, like if you're in this situation, I think to bring up the problem in a very, in a compassionate and a very straightforward way. I'm one for like direct communication. I kind of find it funny that people sometimes like really struggle with, well, how do I say this? How do I say that? It's like, <laughs> well, say it, just say it, say, you know, be, um, you know, be kind when you say it, but you can't not say it just because you're afraid that it might hurt a little bit. It might hurt. It might be something hard to deal with. I would say you're going to have, you have to put it out there and you have, and you have to just, you know, share it and say, I, you know, I feel like we're disconnected. We're off base. We're not, you know, we're not seeing eye to eye on things or, you know, something's going on with us, but I'm not sure what it is. It may be, um, we fight a lot. We fight too much. We fight over stupid things. I'm worried about that. So maybe expressing your con- concern and then and then saying, you know, maybe we can figure this out. You know, maybe we can do something on our own. And if we can't, maybe we need um, to get some help, or maybe we need to go to a workshop or read a few books, or you know, just just start doing the groundwork to see if you can get out of it. And the sooner we I mean, get out of the problem, uh, and the sooner the better. Don't wait and wait and wait, and then the problem like it snowballs. <laughs> so I love that. You also give a lot of tutelage on the flow of emotions from situation that triggers you to the quick assessment to your, how your body reacts with body arousal and then perceptions and thoughts start flowing in and then the feelings start throwing, flowing in and then, and then of course, behavior and re- a reaction to that. So, and it, and it's all happening obviously in a nanosecond and you're not even conscious of what's happening. What's a thought, what's a feeling, what's real, what's not real. It's rapid and our brains do this super, super rapidly because um, this is how we survived as a species. So we're, we're really always scanning for danger, you know, and I don't mean danger. I mean, back in a million years ago, it might've been like a saber tooth tiger (laughs) coming after us, but Today, it could be, say, our partners shutting us out or feeling disconnected from a partner or feeling like you got a certain response from your partner that, you know, that kind of went into that place of your, you know, your attachment related stuff and that implicit memory kind of gets jarred. And so that does happen very rapidly. And the emotional reaction is, it's not just the feeling, but it's, but it's the physiological response as well as the feeling. So it's always, it always uh, involves the mind and the body. And so we do this very rapid appraisal of like, oh, what just happened there? And is it dangerous? Is it not dangerous? And if it feels dangerous, sometimes our emotion kicks way ahead and our partners just see that. And so that's when, when maybe the person we're with says something like, God, your reaction was so out of proportion to what I did. You know, you're making a mountain out of a molehill or something like that. And you may not even know why, you know, you mm-hmm. might say, Oh my gosh, why is this upsetting me so much? And so I like people to, to slow it down and, you know, inwardly attend more and ask themselves, what was my strong reaction about what's happening? Um, 
you know, is, is this reminding me of the time I was left alone, you know, in a bathroom or whatever it is, or, or maybe it's just the same feeling. Like, you know, that feeling, you know, that feeling of when you're not seen or you don't feel important or you wonder if you're worthy or, you know, it kind of, it goes deep, deep in there. And so that's not always on the very forefront of our mind, but it's back there in the brain and it gets, it gets really set off. And so I think it helps to have better regulation, right? Better like to know what we're thinking, what happened, what triggered us so that we can, we can respond more thoughtfully. Okay. That's, that's super, super important to do. And that's good for you. You know, certainly in a, in a healthy relationship, it's great if you're, if you're with somebody who can, who can do that too, or at least is open to it. But it could be really helpful because you want to know what is setting me off, what is triggering me. And you're also going to want to hopefully be able to communicate that if you need to. You could say, oh, you know what? It's just me. You know, I, I, it's my own stuff here. Or you can say, it is my own stuff. But when you did this, it just feels so awful to me, or <laughs> whatever it is. I just had this image of jumping into a vat of molasses at that moment. It's like, if because that's what I need at that moment, like is jumping into a vat of molasses because I need to slow way down in those moments because yes. it's all rapid fire. And then it's like a pinball machine inside your heart because it feels like it's not like one pain point, you know, there's one little sword goes in one little pain point of your heart and then it bounces over to another little pain point in your heart and it's just bouncing all and all it feels like is yeah. ping pong. Pain, yes. Pain and terror. And it, it can happen. You can get into that so rapidly. Yes. And then before long you go, you're going, how, how did this happen? How did we get here? Yeah. How did we get here? We were just having a lovely dinner. How did it end up here? <laughs> yes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Every time I see FOO, I think food fighters. So <laughs> oh, very funny. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so let's talk about food fighters. <laughs> it was it was a little easier than than writing family of origin like 50, 50 times in the book. So I just yeah shortened it to foo F O O. And the bottom line is that you're always directing us back to family of origin, to where we set up those patterns and where we learned how to communicate with each other and learned how to react to pain and suffering and everything, right? Exactly. So um, you're going to want to think about different things within your within your family of origin, which is the family that you were born into. There's different ways that you that we learned rules for for communicating and for expressing and for expressing our emotion and for also processing emotion. For instance, if, you know, I've, I've hear, I hear stories, things like that. Uh, if I'm trying to think just off the top of my head, something recent where, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, parents come home and they're like, um, you know, we're getting, we're getting divorced and dad's going to live here. Mom's going to live here. And are you okay with that? Are you okay? How do you feel? And the kids just, just sits there nodding, you know, okay, okay. And then the, the parents go away thinking, oh gosh, he, he handled that so well. But then nobody ever goes to the kid again to ask, right. are you okay? Let yes. me check in with you. Yeah. What's it like to be now at dad's house one week and mom's house at the next? So nobody ever then revisits that with the, with the child or asks how they're doing or checks in with them or goes any deeper. And, or, or the kid is suddenly, oh, you're not going to go to that school that you were at the last 
eight years of your life. We're, we're, we have to yank you out and we have to move and we're going, we're sending you to another school. Okay. You know, and that's it. And they don't, they don't process that with the child. They don't right. say. And also around divorce, because I'm a child of divorce too, you don't want to ruffle feathers. Like you don't want to make it any more comfortable for everybody. It's like, okay, everybody's uncomfortable here and I don't want to be part mm-hmm. of the problem. And also, was I even the cause of the problem? A lot of Yeah. So it, and so we, we fi- figure out, learn how to do that because we have somebody else ho- holding us in that and helping us through and helping us make sense of it. Because there's no magic answer. There's no, you know, you're just going to be fine with it and that's that. And, but you could say, you know, of course you're sad. That makes sense that you're sad. What are you most concerned about? Or, you know, just taking that time to, to, to process, make sense and understand it and allow and make room for it and say, yeah, it's okay. And guess what? We're moving. It stinks. You being sad is a natural reaction, mm-hmm. you know, validating it and all that. And so, you know, how that happened, did that go on in your family? Did it not go on? Was someone doing that for you? Was nobody doing that for you? Was someone shaming you for feeling sad about something or crying? Were you only allowed to express? Well, you could cry, but if you got angry, forget it, mm-hmm. you know, forget about it. Right. Um, I'll give you something to cry about or like, what, what were the messages that you got? And do you, uh, do you want to accept it or not accept it anymore? Like now that you're an adult, I mean, you can do what you, what you want. You can say, no, you know what? That was wrong. That wasn't right. I, I don't want to accept that. If I'm sad, it's okay to cry. And you know what? It's also okay if I get angry or, or however you want to do it. And it's not, this isn't necessarily to you know, to blame parents, they did, they did the best they could as, you know, often as well. To me, it's more about connecting dots, making sense of things, understanding what happened and understanding what might be that, you know, these running themes, these belief systems, these things that we carry on that maybe we want to get rid of. Maybe we want to say, "Uh uh-uh, no more. I'm not living my life like this anymore. And I'm not thinking this anymore. There's, I just, I just don't want to do it. It's destructive and it's, and I'm now putting out this energy with it as well. And I'm attracting it now too. So if I want to, if I, just because my parents maybe didn't see my, my worth, do I want to go around and continue to think that I'm unworthy? You know, do, or do I want to change that? Do I want to do something about that? So do you lead people down? Like in my book, I do, there's a lot of shadow work in my book. So going back and nurturing those little kids inside of us that, didn't get nurtured, like nobody was helping them navigate those emotions like you just described. And so I suggest talking to that little kid. So do you suggest that as well, the going back in and reparenting in a way your own little child that didn't get what they needed at that moment? That's a fantastic idea. Yes, I would, I would absolutely recommend it. It's great also to do with, like if you can do it with another person, if there's someone there that you do trust that you can do this work, some of this work with too. That's okay. But not everyone has somebody. Uh, Something I heard recently that struck me is that for some people, if it's been like very severe family situation, or it's very been very unsafe for them, maybe there was sexual abuse or some, you know, something really horrible along those lines. Sometimes they've only attached to animals. They've only attached to a pet. Oh, wow. And the pet can even be used as like a safe attachment figure, so to speak. So yes, inner child, 
you turning inward to nurture that child that's in you and give your and reparents like like you said is excellent. So all all of all of those things are you know are helpful ideas. Absolutely. One of the superpowers, one of the five superpowers in my book is super self love, and so I self love is obviously um, interwoven throughout your book as well. And I'm going to read this little piece on self love. Loving yourself is a good idea. <laughs> I love that sentence. Um, talking not about the narcissistic version of self-love, but about the version where you have positive regard for your own well-being and happiness. I just love how simply that is put. Positive regard for your own well-being and happy, happiness. You absolutely should love yourself. I don't believe you have to love yourself, though, before you can love someone else, as it is popular to say, which it is. So I want to speak to that because, and, and you also speak to those women who think, oh my God, do I have to, I mean, I remember, I remember thinking that before my last relationship, like, do I, how together do I have to freaking be? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think that's a confusing myth. Uh, Maybe the best way to say it is you are not born, you know, knowing how to love yourself right? You were taught that or not taught that depending on what happened in that, in the foo again, in the family (laughs) of origin. (laughs) So I think you, you, there's a lot of things that you can do to make yourself, you know, to, to find a sense of purpose and, and find, you know, happiness and find balance and do things that do uh, bring you joy and happiness and make you feel productive and, and all of that. But I, I think we can develop that, you know, that self love sort of as we, you know, kind of as we go along. And I think it's okay. I think there's an element of it that Sometimes we are with, when we're with the right person and they bring out the best in us and they, and we bring out the best in them, not that it's about completing each other. It's not like that, but I think, um, I think you, you really have a strong sense of, of like what love really is, you know, from that. And I don't have to wait and wait and wait. I don't love myself yet. I shouldn't be trying to pair up with anybody, you know? Yeah. You just said something that made me think that a solid relationship can spark your own self-love in you. You know, it's not about the other person loving you, but it is you can spark your own self-love that has actually nothing to do with that other person, but can be sparked by that other person. Something else that it just made me think of also is that, and this has not been one of my issues, I think probably because I'm an only child and I feel like there might be another, oh, I'm an Aries, which is just, I don't know, I just feel like we're just like such you know, leaders and independent. And I don't know, I don't know about the Aries, but I know a lot of Aries that are like me where we don't tend to get, and I'm not an astrology expert. I've never, I don't even know that I've ever mentioned astrology on this <laughs> other than having my amazing Vedic astrology, Carol um, expert, Carol Allen on, but um, it's not really about astrology, but it's just about like, a, I'm, what I'm saying is like my personality type is not one. I think that tends toward loneliness. Like I don't, I I don't get lonely and I don't get like bored on my own and yada, yada. So I have never stayed in a relationship for fear of being alone, but I do know many women who have, and you have a section of your book called you have trouble being alone. And I'm going to read another section of it. This fear of loneliness is a surefire way to tolerate bad behavior in romantic partners. As long as you have a warm body, you're okay. 
However, it is another way for you to keep yourself from having the love in your life that you deserve. This is probably one of the most common reasons that people stay in a relationship with someone who mistreats them. Then you give the signs that you are having trouble um, being alone. But let's talk to that because it does seem like there's the fear of loneliness and then that desperate, you know, especially when you get to the age of if, if women, I never wanted to have kids. So I would never hit that mark where I was like, had anxiety about not finding someone at that moment in my life. But for women that also feel like they want to have kids, you know, so that it's like the lonely, they're both fear based, right? So let's let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's something that I would hear a lot that the feeling of loneliness would be so intolerable that they wanted someone. Yet, you know, when I think about it, to me, it's like a worse loneliness when you're in a disconnected relationship. So when you have that person there yep. and you're disconnected, yep. that sounds much worse to me, but, but I definitely Let me interrupt to just say, I want to give a shout out to my, my first book is called The Lazy Woman's Guide to Just About Everything. I wrote it with Judy O'Neill, who's uh, almost 20 years older than me. And she said, it, I had just broken up with somebody and I was saying, it wasn't that I was lonely, but it was just, I think the holidays were coming up and I was just like, it's just, it's, and, and I don't have trouble with the holidays anymore, but at that mo- right after a breakup, sometimes if the holidays are, are coming up. Yeah. And so she was saying, Bridget, believe me, there is nothing lonelier than being in a bed, in bed with your husband of, you know, 25 years or whatever, and feeling so disconnected and so lonely. And it was like, and, and what that did for me, I mean, you know, that was just a, mo- she was just recalling back to a moment years before that she had felt lonely in a relationship. But I mean, what it made me realize is that we all have those moments where we feel disconnected from love in whatever form it is. So it makes it more human, right? But let me bring it back to you. And I'm sorry that I interrupted. No, no, that's right, right. Absolutely. I, I spend a lot of time in the book talking about tolerating distressing emotions and and doing that if you are in between people or you're not in a relationship because loneliness is one but sometimes you're you're also just you're just in a lot of pain you might actually feel heartbreak it makes it very uh, like a slippery, slippery slope for some women to easily get back into that. And also, you know, again, it just could be a comfort like, well, I've been with this person six months, eight months, you know, it's just trying something new or different or going back out there just feels so dreadful. Um, and so I really try to give a lot of strategies to help women you know, tolerate those negative feelings so that they can get through that time and hopefully start you know, making their lives maybe more fulfilling or thinking about things that they need, that they maybe want to do that they haven't done. Um, maybe there's something else in their life that they have to change too. It's not just about, you know, the guy, you know, maybe there's other, other areas that they need to work on because I, I want them to, to really, if they're going to be in a relationship with someone that it feels really good, they, they feel like they have an equal partner and that they're they're thriving and this person brings out the best in them and, and they bring out the best in that partner. And, and to just tolerate, let's say, a so-so or a relationship that's bad, you know, which, is, which to me is even, you know, even worse than that, I, I just think is, you know, you're really selling yourself short. And, and then the other piece of it, like you said about women who are wanting to have children and, and the, the biological clock is a, it's a harsh reality. And you don't want to spend these, you know, prime years, like in your 20s, and you're wasting time year after year with somebody if you're not sure that they're the right one, or you're already seeing that they're unhealthy, and there's things that are wrong with them. You don't want to waste that time 
and the dating pool also like as time goes on the ones that are really you know that have that secure attachment they're committing earlier so right. they're finding their partners and they're committing and so who's left in the dating pool? oh my gosh oh that's a <laughs> horrible thought <laughs> I hate to say that, but it's true. It's right. true. So, not, and again, not that it's impossible, but I, but I would say take it seriously. Like if you think you really, you want to settle down with somebody, take, take it more seriously, the process of dating and be more discerning about who you're choosing to spend time with and how long you're wanting to spend time with them. That's a, that's a good one. I was just going to say, is there one tip that you would say, and it sounds like you gave a tip just then, which is if you're in a relationship that isn't, isn't feeling right, focus on what you love, focus on things that you want to create in your life. Yes, absolutely. And that everybody I think really deserves like a wonderful person to spend their life with someone who really loves and values them and shows them the care that they deserve and shows up for them and can be really emotionally present and engaged. And so, you know, I would, I would say, don't, don't ever think that you don't deserve that or that you can't have that, or that's beyond your reach. So that's like, I would say the takeaway message I really want women to have. That's beautiful. Thank that's you. beautiful note to end on. Thank you for that. That is gorgeous. So again, everybody, the name of the book is called Ghosted and Breadcrumbs. Stop Falling for Unavailable Men and Get Smart About Healthy Relationships. And it's Dr. Marnie Foyerman. And you can find her at drmarnieonline.com. And I'll put that link in the podcast notes as well. Dr. Marnie Foyerman, thank you so, so much for joining me today. You are definitely a superhero of love. You're out there helping heal hearts. Oh, I love that title. <laughs> I'll take it. Superhero <laughs> of Thank you, Bridget. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Marnie Foyerman. Thank you for joining us today, Superhero of Love. Please, if you have a chance, go over to iTunes and rate and review us and uh, sign up for the podcast and tell your friends about it so we can have more superheroes of love in the fold.